This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, torture, and terrorist acts that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On January 13, 1988, 38-year-old Pablo Escobar woke up to a nightmare. His men brought word that there was an explosion outside his home. His wife and two children were inside. While Pablo frantically tried to reach his family on the phone, first responders searched the crumpled building. Among the debris, they found a slice of the absurd luxury the Escobar family lived in. There were priceless original works by Vincent van Gogh and Salvador Dali hanging on the walls that still stood. The basement garage sported a fleet of eight antique Rolls Royces and a bulletproof Mercedes limo. An entire room was dedicated to hundreds of pairs of Pablo's wife's shoes. Pablo's brother Roberto arrived at the scene just in time to watch rescuers pull Pablo's three-year-old daughter Manuela from underneath pieces of the collapsed ceiling. The family was badly shaken, but alive. Roberto called bodyguards and had them escort the family to another safe house. Then he went to the farm where Pablo was staying to relay the good news. Now that he knew his family was safe, Pablo's mind shifted toward the next big question. Who was going to die for this? I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, 
Just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our fourth and final episode on infamous Colombian cocaine trafficker Pablo Escobar. Last week, we talked about Pablo's war with his own government over the threat of extradition to the United States. He rallied other drug traffickers facing extradition and united them into a terrorist force, killing journalists, politicians, and judges who spoke out against the narcos. This week is the story of El Patron's last stand. Many more innocent Colombians would die in Pablo's war against extradition before he finally reached a compromise with the government. But after so many years of violence, this peace couldn't last. At the beginning of 1988, Pablo was facing hostility from every direction. As the beleaguered kingpin ordered the assassinations of journalists, law enforcement, and politicians, Colombian President Virgilio Barco Vargas declared martial law. In Medellin, no one dared go out after dark. Young men who were merely suspected of being affiliated with Pablo were rounded up and shot. Pablo and his brother Roberto were constantly on the run, moving from hiding place to hiding place all over Colombia. Both men had $10 million bounties on their heads, and they had begun to mistrust even their most senior bodyguards. Through it all, however, Pablo's calm demeanor never changed. He often told Roberto, no drug dealer ever died of old age. He was aware of his likely fate, and he'd accepted it but he could not abide by any threat to his family. When Pablo's home was attacked in the early morning of January 13, 1988, he knew he was facing a new enemy. Just half an hour after the bombing, Pablo received a phone call from Gilberto Rodriguez Orihuela, one of the leaders of the rival Cali cartel. Gilberto feigned concern, telling Pablo that he'd heard about the explosion and wanted to make sure he and his family were okay. Pablo gave nothing away. He thanked Gilberto for his concern and hung up, already considering his next move. The attack on Pablo's home meant that bombings were now fair game. Previously, Pablo's officers had carried out hits with guns and knives, But now, he was ready to blow some stuff up. Pablo needed an explosives expert, one with a proven track record. So he began an obsessive search for the bomb technician who had built the device that detonated under his home. Pablo had a friend who had spent some time in jail with Gilberto Rodriguez. That friend reported that Gilberto had spent a lot of time speaking with a bomb technician who was also incarcerated with them. Bingo. Pablo invited that very same technician to Haciendanopolis, his opulent country estate. When he proposed that the technician train some of Pablo's men in bomb making, the technician replied that he'd done the same kind of work for the Cali cartel recently. It was only then that Pablo explained where the Cali cartel had planted that bomb. The technician went pale. 
He was on Pablo's private estate, surrounded by armed bodyguards. He was sure he was about to die. But Pablo had other plans. He offered to pay the technician to train his men. The technician readily agreed. Not that he had much of a choice. Before Pablo could launch his counterattack, however, Cali struck again. In the summer of 1988, Pablo's mother, Hemilda, was at her home in Medellin, along with Pablo's sisters, Gloria and Marina. At 4 a.m., a car parked outside the home exploded. The house partially collapsed, trapping Pablo's family inside. Marina was pregnant, and the shock of the detonation sent her into labor. She was rushed to the hospital and gave birth weeks early. Luckily, the premature baby survived. But after this second attack, Pablo knew he couldn't waste any more time. On August 18, 1988, he dispatched a team of arsonists to Cali in the dead of night. They set fire to several drugstores owned by Gilberto Rodriguez. His drugstore chain, called Draugas La Rebaja, was his first business and the origin of his wealth. As those stores burned, Orihuela watched his pride and joy go up in flames, just as Pablo intended. And that was only the beginning. Through the end of 1988, Pablo's sicarios began setting off pipe bombs in public areas daily. Pablo knew that the years of violence were wearing on the Colombian people, so the bombs were often strategically set off at night when fatalities were less likely. These bombs were meant to send two messages. Pablo wanted the Colombian government to know that he could strike anywhere at any time, but he also wanted the people to know that he was on their side. He wasn't looking to kill them, only to intimidate their government. The terrorist tactics appeared to be working. Pablo's lawyers were soon in negotiations with Colombian President Barco to reach a peace settlement. Pablo's offer was simple. He would serve some jail time and he would quit trafficking, but he wouldn't give up a cent of his wealth and he would never, under any circumstances, be extradited to the United States. As the war dragged on and the fatalities piled up, peace was looking more appealing to both sides. But then, an imminent regime change threatened Pablo's ambitions. In 1990, there would be a presidential election in Colombia, and the frontrunner was Luis Galán, a fearless liberal who was very outspoken against narcos and very pro-extradition. So, he had to go. On August 18, 1989, Galán appeared before a massive crowd of supporters. He spoke passionately. His connection with the crowd was electric so electric that he didn't notice when someone in the front row pulled an Uzi out of his jacket. Galan was shot several times and died at the scene. When Pablo killed the most beloved politician in Colombia, he also killed any remaining sympathy the Colombian people had for Narcos. Even worse, President Barco shut down all negotiations with Pablo and turned to the American government for help. A few weeks after Galan's murder, United States President George Bush signed National Security Directive 18. That directive allocated over $300 million worth of aid toward fighting drug cartels in Colombia and surrounding countries. 
The Americans were coming for Pablo, but President Barco wasn't going to let them have all the glory. With American money and assistance pouring in, President Barco poured resources into his own special unit of elite soldiers and policemen called Bloc de Besquida, Search Block. Their sole purpose was to find Pablo and bring him in, dead or alive. But Pablo didn't let the ever-increasing stakes distract him. He stayed focused on his next terrorist act. On November 27, 1989, a young man boarded a domestic flight bound from Bogota to Cali. He placed his briefcase under the seat in front of him and waited anxiously for his seatmate to arrive. The man had been given an important mission. His briefcase contained a recording device. After the plane took off, he was supposed to record everything his seatmate said. Soon after the plane took off, the young man excitedly reached for his briefcase, he flipped the switch, and detonated the bomb inside. Avianca Flight 203 exploded at 13,000 feet. All 107 people on board died, while three civilians were killed on the ground by falling debris. Liberal presidential candidate Cesar Javiria, the bomb's intended target, was not one of them. Weeks earlier, the candidate's staff decided to avoid all commercial flights in the interest of safety. People of note were on board, however, two American citizens. If American law enforcement was on the attack against Pablo before, they were frothing at the mouth now. Up next, Pablo runs and negotiates for his life. Stick around to find out who will capitulate first, the man or the country. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. As Pablo Escobar approached his 40th birthday at the end of 1989, he was being actively hunted by Colombian and American authorities. For the first time, these highly trained military and police forces were openly authorized to kill Pablo on sight. Now all they had to do was catch him. Pablo had already been on the run for years. He and his brother Roberto moved from safe house to safe house, sleeping in shifts so that one of them was always awake. Even under these dire circumstances, Pablo kept fighting. On the morning of December 6, 1989, traffic was heavy outside Departamento Administrativo de Seguridad headquarters in Bogota. The government agency, abbreviated DAS, is the Colombian equivalent to the FBI. This building was the central nervous system of the search for Pablo Escobar. At 7.30 a.m., Pablo's men detonated a 500-pound bomb just outside of the building. It was one of the most powerful explosions Colombia had ever seen. The explosion blasted a 20-foot-deep crater into the street. 
The entire front of the DAS headquarters was blasted away. Windows were shattered in buildings in a 26-block radius surrounding the explosion. As the dust settled, cries of the injured filled the air. Those who could free themselves from the rubble stumbled into the street like zombies. The blood stood out starkly on their dust-caked hair and skin. Among the survivors was the bomb's target, General Miguel Alfredo Maza Marquez, the head of the DAS. He wasn't even injured. The ceiling of his office had crumbled and fallen on top of him, but the steel-reinforced walls protected him. Pablo had failed. General Maza was still alive, though the same couldn't be said for the 52 innocent people killed in the explosion. Pablo could feel the authorities closing in on him. Though he constantly varied his methods of communication to avoid surveillance, an American intelligence team was listening to him regularly. They found Pablo, quote, to be a man of some refinement. He usually used very clean Spanish, free of vulgarity. He was painstakingly polite and seemed determined to project unruffled joviality at all times, as though trying to keep things light. But once, they caught a conversation between Pablo and his cousin Gustavo. This time, Pablo's tone was very different. He finally gave an uncensored perspective on his circumstances, and it was terrifying. Somehow, in his warped brain, the only way to achieve peace was through more killing. Pablo ranted about lighting their enemies on fire. He resolved to increase the violence until the public couldn't stand it. The government had to capitulate to the cries of their people. But the government was upping the ante on the violence as well. Throughout early 1990, Search Block and their American allies took down several of Pablo's closest associates. First, they killed John Arias, a rider die Sicario, in June. In July, they arrested Hernan Einau, Pablo's brother-in-law. And on August 9, 1990, they killed Pablo's cousin, Gustavo. The Search Block officially claims Gustavo was killed during a shootout, but Pablo tells a different story. He says his cousin was kidnapped and tortured before he was executed. Pablo's story might be closer to the truth. Journalist Mark Bowden writes, The expression, killed in a shootout with police, was regarded as a euphemism for summary execution. Things were dire, but every strike against Pablo only strengthened his resolve. He knew the only way he could stay alive in Colombia was to bring the country to its knees until the government begged for mercy. In the midst of all this, Cesar Javiria, the Liberal Party candidate and intended target of the Avianca Flight 203 bomb, was elected president. It was a surprise to everyone, even President Javiria himself, that he'd made it through the campaign alive. He believed the only reason he was still breathing was because Pablo Escobar had decided not to kill him. On August 30th, 1990, less than a month after the election, Pablo ordered his most high-profile kidnapping yet. Journalist Diana Turbay was 40 years old when she and her team followed members of a guerrilla group called the National Liberation Army into the Colombian jungle. 
Diana thought she was going to speak with the priest leader of the guerrilla group and hoped to further peace discussions with them. This gesture was particularly meaningful because she was the daughter of a former Colombian president, Julio Cesar Turbay. But the meeting was a trap, and the peace talks were a sham. Shortly after making contact with the guerrillas, Diana was separated from her companions, her ID was taken, and she was spirited away to Pablo's clutches. It was a shrewd move on Pablo's part. Because Diana was related to a former Colombian president, Pablo had forced members of Bogota's political elite to negotiate with President Javiria on his behalf. One week after Diana disappeared, President Javiria offered Pablo protection from extradition and reduced prison time if he surrendered and confessed. Pablo responded by kidnapping the editor of the newspaper El Tiempo and the sister of a powerful political player. He made the following counter-demands. He wanted extradition to be banned. He wanted the requirements of his confession to be fully defined by the government. He wanted his family protected, and he wanted to control the setting of his own imprisonment. With his hostages as leverage, Pablo could see a light at the end of the tunnel. His mood lifted. For his 41st birthday party in December 1990, he insisted he had to have live musicians. Roberto was flabbergasted. The entire country was looking for them. People they'd known for years were betraying them, and Pablo wanted to bring strangers into their safe house just for a bit of music? But Pablo booked the musicians anyway. As the party started, Roberto packed his bags, telling Pablo that he couldn't stay with him when he was so flagrantly blowing their cover. Just as Roberto came downstairs with his belongings, he laid eyes on the musicians. The six guitarists Pablo had hired were all blind. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't betray the location of the safe house. Roberto was amazed. He dropped his suitcase and joined the party. After dinner, the musicians stood up to sing Happy Birthday. It was only then they asked whose birthday they were celebrating. The room went silent. Pablo stood and told the musicians, I don't want you to be afraid, but you are singing to Pablo Escobar. The musicians laughed. They literally didn't believe it. They sang the song and the party continued. When the musicians finished, Roberto gave each of them $20,000 in cash. It was only then, as they felt the thick stacks of bills, that they realized it wasn't a joke. They had just performed for Pablo Escobar. They were given explicit instructions to change the money in small increments, to never carry the full amount, and to never mention Pablo's name. Pablo had earned his reputation. His barbaric tactics were continuing to wreak havoc on the people of Colombia. Over 300 police had been killed in Medellin alone since the search block was established. And in the first two months of 1991, there reportedly were an average of 20 murders a day in Colombia. President Javiria found himself facing mounting pressure to resume peace talks with Pablo and make a deal. He relented and offered new terms for Pablo's surrender, even agreeing to outlaw extradition. And after weeks of tense debate, the two sides found an accord. Pablo promised to stop the violence. 
In return, he'd be allowed to construct his own prison on his own land. He selected a hill on the outskirts of Medellin to build what would be called La Catedral, the cathedral. Pablo selected his own guards and all the prison inmates, which included his closest sicarios and his brother Roberto. The search block had to stay at least 20 kilometers away from La Catedral at all times. On June 19, 1991, the two sides exchanged their assets. President Javiria's Constitutional Assembly voted to officially ban extradition, and Pablo Escobar turned himself over to the government. A private helicopter took Pablo to La Catedral. It flew through empty skies. The government had agreed to ban all other flights that day for Pablo's safety. The helicopter landed on the prison's soccer field, which was still just a patch of dirt. Most of La Catedral was still under construction. So far, it was just a collection of simple buildings surrounded by a fence. Prisoner housing was located furthest up the hill, with the best view of Medellin below. As Pablo disembarked, he was met by 50 uniformed prison guards. They all had their rifles aimed at him. Pablo shouted at them, Lower your weapons, damn it! And they obeyed. In this prison, the captive gave the orders, and the captors followed them. In many ways, Pablo's time in La Catedral was actually a lifestyle improvement. After so many years on the run, it was nice to have a permanent place of operations to relax, recover, and reorganize his business. He knew all radio signals and phone calls out of La Catedral would be intercepted, so he bred pigeons to use for communication. Each one was fitted with a custom leg band imprinted with his name and address. Pablo Escobar, Maximum Security Prison, and Bigado. President Javiria had agreed to let Pablo construct his own prison. What he ended up building was his own luxury fortress. The gymnasium was outfitted with equipment and a sauna. The soccer field got fresh sod and was painted with regulation lines. A nightclub was installed. The cells were retrofitted to look more like hotel suites with parlors, kitchens, and full separate bathrooms. And it was all approved by the U.S. Federal Bureau of Prisons. No one wanted to say no to El Patron. Hustler magazine, of all things, published an illustration of Pablo and his men living it up in their maximum security resort. When the article made its way to President Javiria's desk, he was furious. Someone had to go to the prison and clear out the contraband, but no one wanted to do the job. The Colombian army claimed they didn't have sufficient personnel for the task. The national police were banned from the prison grounds per the terms of Pablo's surrender. The DAS wasn't allowed inside a prison unless there was a riot. So, in frustration, President Javiria finally ordered his deputy minister of justice, Eduardo Mendoza, to hire a truck and personally clear out the prison himself. It felt like a death sentence, but Mendoza agreed. To Mendoza's surprise, his truck was waved into the prison grounds. Pablo himself was there to greet him and immediately agreed to the removal of anything Mendoza found objectionable. Pablo's own men helped put the items on the truck and Mendoza proudly showed the loot to President Javiria that evening. 
Immediately afterwards, replacement satellite televisions and surround sound systems were installed at La Catedral. From Pablo's point of view, if he appeared to follow the rules, that was good enough. But he was about to cross a line that President Javiria would not be able to tolerate. Shortly after arriving at La Catedral, Pablo had enlisted the help of two prominent Medellin families to run his cocaine empire. The two families, the Galeanos and the Moncadas, grew immensely rich under this arrangement. Eventually, Pablo felt that they had grown too rich for their worth. So in the summer of 1992, Pablo sent several of his men to steal money from the family's stash houses. Soon after, each of the families sent a representative to La Catedral to confront Pablo. Pablo killed those representatives, butchered them into pieces, and then incinerated them in a fire pit. That was it. When Pablo murdered on prison grounds, the Colombian government was complicit. President Javiria was through with this charade. He had to properly imprison Pablo Escobar, or else kill him. Up next, Pablo's brief reprieve at La Catedral comes to an end. Now, back to the story. Pablo Escobar was 42 years old in the summer of 1992. The Colombian government had agreed to let him live in a prison of his own construction, surrounded by his closest remaining allies, including his brother Roberto. But when Pablo performed executions on the prison grounds, the government could no longer tolerate the arrangement. On July 21, 1992, the Colombian military showed up at La Catedral, led by Defense Minister Rafael Navas Pardo and the new Deputy Justice Minister, Eduardo Mendoza. Pablo was ready for them. His men dug up weapons and cash that had been stashed on the property. Roberto prepared their escape route. He snuck to a secret area along the fence, dug up some wire cutters, cut holes just big enough for their men to duck through. Pablo stalled as long as he could, trying to keep the military out. Per his agreement with President Javiria, the military was banned from the prison grounds. But Javiria wasn't taking Pablo's calls, and Pablo heard from a general on his payroll that the army planned to forego the agreement. They would raid the prison, and Pablo would either be extradited or killed. Incredibly, the Colombian army honored Pablo's demands over the orders of their own commanding officer. Pablo was so powerful and notoriously bloodthirsty that General Navas felt sending his men inside the prison was certain death. Deputy Justice Minister Mendoza was at his wit's end. Pablo's continued imprisonment was vital to Colombia's reputation as a lawful nation on the international stage. With every moment the army remained outside the prison gates, Mendoza could feel his country's credibility slipping away. As night fell, Pablo finally allowed Mendoza inside with a few armed guards from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Mendoza was trembling from exhaustion and trepidation. He was about to meet the world's most dangerous outlaw. But he lifted his chin. He represented the Republic of Colombia. He held all the power, and he was going to set this situation straight. Mendoza met Pablo on the road inside the prison gates. 
Pablo waited in the shadows, just outside a pool of light from a single bulb. He was surrounded by a dozen other men. The whole setup struck Mendoza as comically staged. Pablo seemed much shorter, fatter, and less imposing than he had imagined. But then Pablo spoke. He said, You have betrayed me, Senor Vice Minister. President Javiria has betrayed me. You are going to pay for this, and the country is going to pay for this. It was at that moment that Mendoza realized he was a fool for entering the prison grounds. He was not here to negotiate. He was a hostage. Once Mendoza was inside El Catedral and most of the army was outside, the chaos increased, just as Pablo knew it would. The army gathered in larger numbers outside the gates, and Pablo, Roberto, and a few sicarios used the diversion as a chance to sneak out the secret hole in the prison fence. It was foggy and raining, so the men had good cover as they darted into the jungle. As the sun rose, the army invaded the prison grounds. They gunned down the remaining sicarios and rescued Mendoza. As the smoke cleared, the soldiers confirmed what they'd already suspected. Pablo Escobar had escaped again. Within a few hours, Pablo reached out to President Javiria, offering to forget the whole misunderstanding and return to La Catedral without further bloodshed. But Javiria had learned his lesson. He would not parlay with Pablo again. Instead, Javiria asked for American aid. President Bush fired back with everything he had. Delta Force, Centrospike Intelligence Team, the DEA, the FBI, the ATF, the CIA, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force were all searching for Pablo. On the Colombian side, the search block resumed the hunt as well. Their main method of tracking Pablo was via his phone conversations. Search block commander Colonel Hugo Martinez ordered a cell phone blackout in Medellin in order to track Pablo's signal more easily. Pablo responded by shifting his primary communications to radio and courier messengers. He only used mobile phones while inside a moving taxi, making his signal more difficult to trace. Pablo and Roberto brazenly stayed in apartments throughout Medellin, and occasionally, when the cabin fever became too much, they even walked the streets. Roberto would often don a disguise, but Pablo didn't bother. He trusted his own confidence to protect him. Despite Pablo's confidence, his enemies continued to mount. On January 30, 1993, Pablo ordered the bombing of a Bogota bookstore, killing 21 innocent people. The very next day, a ranch where Pablo's mother, Hemilda was staying was torched and some of the buildings were bombed. The CIA identified the bombing as the work of a new vigilante group. They called themselves Los Pepes, short for Perseguidos por Pablo Escobar, which translates to people persecuted by Pablo Escobar. The group was a loose gathering of Pablo's victims, rivals, and disgruntled former cartel members, backed by the Cali cartel. Los Pepes brutally targeted Pablo's closest family members and employees, returning the cruelty Pablo had inflicted on the Bogota elites. In July 1993, they even castrated a prized stallion belonging to Roberto. 
Pablo struck back with bombings where he could, but he was losing manpower. In the fall of 1993, Pablo's fear for his family overtook any desire to retaliate. He once again arranged to surrender himself to authorities as soon as his family was moved to safety overseas. The situation was brutally ironic. Pablo had killed thousands to secure his right to remain in Colombia, and in the end, he'd made the country an unsafe place for his own family to live. For a few days, it looked like Pablo actually would turn himself in. But the plan fell apart. After his family was in an airplane bound for Germany, Pablo heard that they wouldn't be allowed entry into the country. No nation was willing to provide safe haven for El Patron's family. Pablo's family ended up back in a hotel in Bogota with no protection. His daughter Manuela, then nine years old, reportedly wandered the hotel, singing a song about how Los Pepes was coming to kill her. The other hotel guests immediately checked out to avoid becoming an incidental casualty. Pablo's love for his family was what ultimately brought him down. Pablo called the hotel often while his family was there, and search block commander Colonel Martinez used the calls to trace Pablo's location. For days, Colonel Martinez ate and slept in his surveillance vehicle until they traced Pablo's location to a neighborhood in Medellin called Los Olivos. December 1, 1993 was Pablo's 43rd birthday. It was the last birthday he would be alive to celebrate. The next day, Pablo called his wife Maria and tried to assure her that everything was going to be all right. She was exhausted from the days she'd been waiting, unprotected in the hotel. She told Pablo tearfully that she had to wait and see where we are going to go, and I believe that will be the end of us. There was little Pablo could say to comfort her. He told Maria that if she needed anything, she could call him. She reminded him to call his mother, and they said goodbye. Then their son, Juan Pablo, took the phone from Maria. Pablo knew that the call was being traced, and the longer he stayed on the line, the more likely it was that he'd be caught. But he kept talking anyway. The men on Colonel Martinez's surveillance team straightened up in their seats. The longer Pablo spoke, the more precisely they could pinpoint Pablo's location. Colonel Martinez dispatched several vehicles to the perimeter of their search area. They were closing in. And then their spirits fell. Pablo told Juan Pablo he'd call back later and hung up. But Colonel Martinez kept the team on high alert. They just needed one more call. At 3 p.m. that afternoon, their surveillance equipment came to life again. Pablo was dialing. He called his son and resumed their discussion. When Juan Pablo asked his father where their family was going to live, Pablo told him, we're going to knock on the doors of every embassy from all around the world because we're willing to fight incessantly because we want to live and study in another country without bodyguards and hopefully with a new name. Outside, a search block official saw a curtain move in a second-story window. A bearded man holding a phone looked down at the traffic below. The search block official got on his radio 
and adrenaline surged through the entire team. They had finally found El Patron. Colonel Martinez and his men busted into the apartment. Pablo and his bodyguard escaped out of a window onto the roof. The bodyguard was gunned down immediately. Pablo made it onto a neighboring roof before he was shot down. Pablo Escobar died one day into his 44th year. He left behind many legacies. Federico Gutierrez, the mayor of Medellin, has done his best to take his city's reputation beyond its history with Pablo Escobar. He wants Medellin known as the city Pablo Escobar tried but failed to destroy. But so far, that's been an impossible task. In just the last five years, Hollywood has produced several Escobar-related movies and television shows, most notably Netflix Narcos. Those pieces have fueled a burgeoning narco-tourist industry. American rapper Wiz Khalifa took a selfie smoking a joint on Pablo's grave in March 2017. In response, Mayor Gutierrez called Khalifa a sinvergüenza, a shameless ruffian. Even Roberto, after serving 14 years in prison, is capitalizing on tourists. As recently as 2018, 72-year-old Roberto Escobar escorted a tour group around one of the safe houses he and Pablo sought shelter in. He showed them the bullet holes from a kidnapping attempt and a hidden compartment in the floor where he stored $2 million in cash. Pablo's death did almost nothing to stem the flow of cocaine into the United States. The drug trade he helped expand into a global empire is still active today. The scope and violence of his operation changed the narcotics industry forever. The African hippos he illegally imported into his estate have run free and multiplied, becoming a serious and enduring problem for the Colombian government. And yet, many people still remember Pablo as El Patron, the Robin Hood of Medellin. His legacy, both the good and the bad, will never be forgotten. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find all episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.